Hey guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project Podcast. I'm recording this at 5pm on Sunday, and I've, I've insisted that today make way for the latest and, mo- and very belated installment in the Day of Study. The Day of Study is just a day when I read shit that interests me. Uh, periodicals, mostly newsy stuff. It is sort of the once-a-week binge where I get myself acquainted with whatever's going on in the world, try to do a deep dive on the things about which I read little snippets over the course of the week that I found interesting. So it, it tends to go on for several hours just sitting on the couch reading, and I learn a lot of shit like every week. It's good. I really should stick to this, but I think it's main allure lately, and the reason I see it as so restorative is, for one thing, it keeps me from doing any kind of media, like news deep dives during the week, which I'm prone to doing less out of genuine interest in what's going on in the world than out of, like, fear. Like, I I see something about, like, nukes or war or, like, political unrest, and I'm like, this shit's gonna hit the fan. Let me read a dozen articles. That, That happened big time when war broke out between Russia and Ukraine. I think I did a, um, a podcast about it. It seemed like within 24 hours of the war actually starting. Incidentally, before I continue, let me mention that one of the distinguishing characteristics of the day of study, such as it is chronicled in the podcast, is that these tend to be way looser in their construction. It's basically just a riff. If you're not interested in that kind of unstructured mess, if you're not just interested in like having a voice in the background while you clean your dog, I totally understand if you just tune out now. I will never ask you a question about anything talked about today. But yeah, when, like, so there was all this update about when Russia was going to invade, and I remember dreading it and dreading it, but kind of holding out hope that Putin was going to feel like, ah, foiled again by that fucking dog and his hippie but he didn't feel that way he like he went ahead and did war i remember that morning working on edits for cuba fruit and i was sitting at a at a coffee shop that i would go to every day in brickle it was called purost it was a nice mom and pop place and even though we all kind of knew that the invasion was coming like when i was finally watching video and hearing the noises of like those first bombing campaigns it was so horrifying and like seeing two modern looking militias shooting it out in an urban street with like hondas and trains it was so fucking crazy and terrifying and i think i spent like three days just reading the news and it it was a weird consolation that i got from doing that and it turned into such a fucking wormhole because i knew nothing and that was the source of anxiety i couldn't foresee where this was going i couldn't see if this was like the the dawn of world war three and as i continued to read for hours and hours I'm like traversing dozens of articles, reading hundreds, probably in the course of those few days, reading thousands of comments. At the end of all of that reading, all of that media consumption, I wasn't really more informed about what was likely to happen. I didn't have any sense of like surer footing in the outcome of the war. I took a weird kind of solace in hearing experts just talk about how hopelessly baffled and worried they were 
about the same topic. And it was just balming a little ulcer of anxiety. I don't think I was working at the time because I was sitting on some savings and just sort of letting myself work full time on the book. And having a regimented day of study is a big help. Another thing that it helps with is fucking taking my attention off of the other reading assignments that are currently dominating all of my reading time during the week. Today, um, early in the day, I got in probably four to five hours of work on a new book that I'm submitting to my agent at the end of July, and uh, I've worked on it every single day for several hours a day since April. Suffice to say, it was a reprieve to spend a few hours today reading, like I went sort of just cruising on Reddit, but I also went through like the top stories in the New York Times, read through the um, fiction, the annual fiction issue from the New Yorker, read some pieces in foreign affairs, and I think there was something else, I can't remember, but let's get into it. So the two longish kind of feature stories that I read from the New York Times were, like the first one was very much a kind of Sunday special, where it was about campaign finances, for the 2024 election, like how much money has been raised mainly by the Republican candidates. First of all, I didn't know that the mayor of Miami was running for president. That was a surprise. But it was also interesting to see that Mike Pence has only raised like a million bucks. There are all these clips of him being questioned about January 6th, where Trump tried to tried to have him executed, and he has, he does not seem to have perfected an answer, which is surprising. Like, if I was going to go, if I was going to run for president, let's say I had served four years um, to the worst one in history, but people like me, and let's say that the guy that I worked for, like, toward the end of his tenure, he, uh, he totally, like, he started flipping tables and telling people to hang me in public, and then those people actually tried to do it. That would be, like, the first base that I covered. In terms of, like, debate prep, interview prep, I would just really, really cultivate and hone my answer to the question, which I would, I, I would go so far as to say is inevitable. The question of, how did you feel when your boss tried to have you killed. So that was the first long piece that I read, but it was really the piece of secondary interest. The piece of primary interest, and I suspect this is the case for everyone paging through the New York Times today, is kind of a profile of this dude. His first name is Rex, and his last name begins with an H. He just got arrested this past week, and he is apparently a serial killer. I think the article said that he is suspected of having killed like nine women, a man, and a child. The investigation goes back like 15 years. This dude worked in Manhattan and he lived in Long Island. Suburban dude, very average, very kind of basic. He's kind of teased in the piece as being like a typical New Yorker. I was surprised to see that the New York Times actually wrote N-O-O-Y-A-W-K-A-H. Very boastful, very obnoxious is what they were getting at. Naturally, as the reporters are surveying, his neighborhood and trying to get a sense of what his daily life was like, they interview a few neighbors who, for the most part, say, like, whatever, he was there. But there are a couple of neighbors who are like, yeah, he always, he creeped me out. I knew there was something wrong with him. He always gave me a dirty look, gave my children weird candies on Halloween. But like with every other serial killer, it seems most people were inclined to say like, yeah, he was just a typical New Yorker. Very typical Dude, bit of a douchebag, very loud and braggadocious, yet seemed to enjoy some degree of success. And for some reason, this is like the most striking thing. I have this profile that I'm sure is informed just by like horror movies and novels, where I think of a serial killer as being like somewhat clever, calculating, and reclusive. 
this dude was out there. He was out and about. They even had like a, they they showed a still frame from security camera footage. I think at a gas station or a 7-Eleven where he bought the burner phones that he would use like during his lunch break. He would use these burner phones to call and torment the parents of his victims. It was a really fucked up story. It's only now looking back on it that I realize the author did not lavish much attention on like what he did to his victims which strikes me as kind of like admirable and dignified and very restrained because i think if you're writing that piece you kind of know that that's what a lot of people are looking for the scandal of it the salaciousness the violence they point out that like investigators obviously they took his phone they took his his computer and they found that a few weeks ago or a few months ago he was googling um, Long Island serial killer or New York serial killer. And he was reading articles about how the investigation was ramping up. So clearly he was concerned and it was on his radar. It's something, I don't know, I'm gonna keep tabs on it. And it's weird, it brings to mind like the Hannah Arendt thing about, from when she was writing about the, the trials at Nuremberg where Nazi guards were being held, in Nazi leadership, were being held accountable for their role in the in the Holocaust. And she talked about the, like the banality of evil, these what are referred to as desk killers, people who basically commit mass atrocities by way of paperwork. And that phrase, the banality of evil, has become, has just fallen into the water supply. It's common parlance. We use it all the time. And we use it so often that the phrase itself has become banal. The banality of evil, the everydayness of evil, the fact that evil shows up to work in a suit and a tie. It seems like that notion of the banality of evil has become so banal, so everyday, so commonplace, that when suddenly, you know, as will happen periodically every five or seven years, we are confronted with some horrific crime, some horrific monster. That is the total epitome, the total embodiment of the notion of the banality of evil, that it becomes exceptional again. It's suddenly extraordinary how unextraordinary this man is. Although, the fact, the very fact of a serial killer's existence seems like increasingly striking to me, at least. And I think it's mainly because as I read things about like the craft of storytelling, and particularly over the past couple months, the craft of like murder mysteries and thrillers, which very often have to do with serial killers. A lot of authors who have been in the business for a long time, authors who are like established bestsellers, they've been doing it for 25 or 30 years. Granted, they tend to be older, they tend to be in their 50s and 60s and 70s, but they all seem to agree that it has gotten harder to write in that genre because of technology. Uh, last week, I read a thriller by Tess Gerritsen. It was the first book in her now famous, I think, 13-volume long Rizzolian Isles crime series. I think it's set in the year, like, 1998 or 1999, and, like, the main character has a car phone. But what these authors are pointing out is, like, every scenario that they would come up with, everything in their typical narrative bag of tricks is somehow altered by the existence of smartphones. The fact that basically everyone is trackable unless you insert some line about how they, they forgot their phone at work. But really, who forgets their phone at work? They, I don't want to say they're complaining, but they're just observing that like the advancement of technology requires more ingenuity on the part of storytellers because technology is always advancing in the direction of simplifying life and at least trying to make life a little safer, a little more stable, a little more consistent and convenient. And if technology has come this far in making life, you know, convenient and safe, 
it gets a little harder to come up with convincing stories about how everything goes to shit. Oh, that was another interesting thing I was reading this week. I'm reading a book called, I think, The Art of Cruelty. It's a long essay about, like, how we consume violence in the news and in everyday media. But the author is pointing out in the beginning that cruelty is, in a way, clearer and more direct than compassion. I'm kind of expanding on it, but that when you see a grand act of charity and kindness, it is reasonable to have at least some sense of questioning of why the person put themselves out. But whenever you see like a monumental act of cruelty, like a mass shooting, for instance, I guess that's the most common one, or just the sudden appearance of a serial killer in the nightly news, cruelty is way less ambiguous. Whenever people see a huge act of cruelty, yeah, there might be some speculation about, like, what were the killer's motives? Why did he go such lengths to perform such a crime? Fuck, there was a lot to talk about, and now I feel, like, kind of exhausted. I've been talking for, like, a half hour just about the first periodical I read. The other, one of the other ones was Foreign Affairs, which I've been, like, reading pretty regularly now, and one thing that I've noticed, you've probably made this observation as well, um, the world, the world is huge. There's a lot of shit going on. There's a lot of different places you could be. And I've always been curious about the, the journal Foreign Affairs, but I figured it would be way over my head. But as I've been reading it over the past few months, like, it's really accessible. They are clearly gunning for, like, the largest possible audience. And so it's not like the Miami Herald, which, like, the, at the Miami Herald, they're very open about the fact that they write in a second or third grade vocabulary. I don't think foreign affairs goes that far, but I think kind of like the New York Times, they write in maybe like an eighth grade vocabulary. I want to say like it's made me feel better about like our situation in the world, what's going on, who's winning that war between Russia and Ukraine. But only today did I really start to question the fact that, yeah, I do always close this periodical feeling somewhat optimistic. And it's only today that I've started to think like, well, it's a little suspicious. Just suspicious that one should so consistently come away from what appears to be a very legitimate source of news and insight always feeling the same way. Like, if you're reading an honest chronicle of what's going on in the, in the world, you should probably, like, it should cause, like, horrible emotional flux if it is honest, if it is presenting to you the, you know, the pertinent facts of the day as they come up. Today I was reading about, like, the, you know, rivalry between China and the U.S. and how it does seem that both administrations are trying to make it seem, you know, trying to cool the temperature between them. And this article was arguing that, like, the new rivalry, sort of economic rivalry between the U.S. and China is a good thing. And it's going to foster growth in all in all of the industries that are being targeted by them, that over which they are competing. It's only as I try summarizing it that I realize, like, uh, it might be, there might be a little bit of spin there. Anyways, I'm kind of, I feel like I'm losing my voice. I'm going to cut this a little bit short. Thank you so much if you've made it all the way here on this most indulgent of episodes. I appreciate it very much. And if you would like to help out the show, I would very much appreciate it if you could take a minute to sort of just give it a positive review on whatever podcast platform you use. Once again, thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next time.